is the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. I'm Rachel, I'm a writer for Films Fatale, and I have a column on world cinema. Who's here with me? James here. I'm a content creator from Michigan. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul, and I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. This is Andreas. I am the creator and primary writer for Films Fatale, and we have yet another episode of the K-Cut for you, a movie podcast for movie fans by movie fans. This is my topic this week. And I don't know. I don't want to really think of like one particular film or anything or a genre. Yeah, I want to get a little bit philosophical because why not? And for any people who have been uh, tuned into Films for Tap for a while, you might have even heard me say this expression before. So you see, there's a film philosophy that I have, which I will get into in a second. And I wanted that to be the theme of this week's episode. Can we all three come up with different ideologies or platitudes, rather, if they were their welcome, of film philosophies that we can share? For instance, I will start off with mine, and that might make a little bit more sense as to what I am discussing. So, um, are we all ready to hear this wonderful revelation? <laughs> it's it's not that fantastic, but. I say this partially in jest. So what I always say when it comes to film fans, because I've always found that there are different types of audiences. There's like the popcorn cinema audience that just wants something feel good or exciting or not too heavy on the brain. But then there's the other audience that loves very stimulating art house stuff, challenging works with that in mind. I've said this for years. There are two types of cinephiles, those who love Crash and those who love Crash. Tell us a bit more what you mean, Andreas. <laughs> In case you thought your Spotify was skipping or something, or that I'm going insane, let me clarify. There are two films of the name Crash, both large in stature. One of them is the Academy Award winner for Best Picture, very polarizing one, of course, by Paul Haggis. It's a 2004 film which was wide released in 2005 it's uh, a bunch of stories about different types of social tension and racial profiling and lives of crime and abuse all smushed together in this mosaic and then there's the other film called crash by david cronenberg a very twisted film about one of the most demented forms of eroticism ever committed to cinema. So before going too, too deeper into this, let me explain the expression. There are two types of cinephiles, those who love crash and those who love crash. I'm basically saying you either love stuff that doesn't really force you to think too much. It's more the blockbuster stuff, the stuff that, you know, you can, kind of shake off after a while, but it gets you for a little bit, you know, conventional stuff. And then there's the stuff that's very difficult. It's certainly an acquired taste and it lingers with you pretty much for a while, just because you've had to do the mental work with, with really trying to pick it apart, which I know is not everyone's cup of tea. So first off, before we continue, what type of crash do we like folks? Rachel, what, what do you like crash or crash? Hmm, I think I lean more towards Cronenberg, but I haven't actually seen that particular one. So by default, I've got to say that I have to go with Haggis' Crash. Default, the two sweetest words in the English language. 
But you don't necessarily have to have seen, I guess, Crash. If you like Cronenberg in general, it's... I wouldn't say it's standard Cronenberg because it's it's pretty twisted even by his standards. But in general, I guess, would you prefer more of the Cronenberg side or are you still leaning more towards Haggis? Definitely more the Cronenberg side. I will say, though, that I don't think this is all that strict a binary. I think that you can be on either side of it at different points or even in different modes of your life, too. I think that's fair. I think it's uh, more of like a tonal thing that, that I'm saying. But even then, as, as you said, you could certainly be a fan of both parties. James, what about you? Because I believe you have seen both. Yes, I definitely prefer Cronenberg's Crash. But I will say, when I was 18, I used to love Paul Haggis's Crash. I don't know why. There was just something about it. I, I think I was just going through a period where I, I wanted to watch like really heavy material emotionally. I was just really into that. And then eventually I was like, this is a little self-indulgent even for like a director who's really trying hard to do a, a quote-unquote passion piece. I mean, it had a really interesting cast though too. Like I think anytime Ludacris is in a movie, it's always interesting. Except he's playing like somebody who's extremely racist against Asian people. Mm-hmm. And then just, there, there's just other storylines. I'm like, you know, this probably couldn't be made today and get a good response. But then Cronenberg's crash, it's like. That also could be made today. <laughs> that, oh, that, that movie's so wild. Like, also, it makes me realize James Spader is literally down for anything. Or was, at least. Oh, yeah, or, or was. He, yeah. Like, just thinking about, like, like, it instantly made me think, like, in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I'm like, he plays a creep really well. I, not not necessarily creep, but yeah, he definitely had some really out there roles that are like I don't want to say edgy, but I don't know, I, or just like everybody in that movie. I was just like, or Holly Hunter, yeah, Holly Hunter. This certainly, I mean, she's done challenging stuff, but this doesn't seem like it was like part of her wheelhouse. But or Rosanna Arquette too. Yeah, I just like it's like how did you pull off this cast to do this movie of all things? Well, Cronenberg was established, but even still, like with that huge amount of, um, I, I guess, of prestige and legacy in, in the film industry, because at this point, Cronenberg had done the fly video drum. He was really well known. That's still a surprising because it's like, who would sign on? And if the listener, if you listeners don't know what this is about, Crash, in short, is about this developed erotic fixation with car accidents that becomes a very, very weird sickness that this group of people have. And just that on paper is like, I can't imagine people saying yes. But lo and behold, here's a whole cast. It's also really nuanced. Like the fact that there's an entire group of people who are into it. Yeah. But like when there are new members, they see like this light within it. Like, I must partake and discover more and more and more. And it gestates into what to me is one of the most like chilling endings of a film I've ever seen where I just, to this day, thinking about it, I feel like it's sick. Like, like you woke up from a nightmare, but you can't shake off that nightmare that you've had and you still can't 20 years later. It's one of those where it's like, Wow, who who in the hell could have come up with this outside of David Cronenberg? Like it's it's that weird. It's got it's got almost palm door endings, one of those endings that's just so striking that you just can't get it out of your mind. Well, yeah, which you've brought up before. The real question none of us are asking is how many people thought they were going to see the recent Academy Award winner and got a huge surprise instead. 
Oh, like if it was like announced to Criterion, and, like at the video store, the, or that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Like if it was like sold out, and it's like, well, James Spader's a big name. He was in Seinfeld. He hates Step Nine. Okay, I'm sure this is the right movie. And lo and behold, no. I mean, they were released almost a decade apart, so I can't imagine that they would end up close to each other in a video store. James, you know people took their kids to see Pan's Labyrinth, right? Right. Some people just don't do their homework. <laughs> Heck, so. some people took their kids to South Park just because it was animated. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, there were people who watched uh, Hairspray and thought, oh, I'm going to watch other John Waters movies. No, don't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, do that, but be prepared. Uh, well, anyway, so... What I think is, oh, first off, let's actually get into the other crash as well, the Paul Haggis one. Why don't we like it? And what potential appeal do we think that there is for those who do like it? So, like, I know that this is one of those films that has multiple storylines and they all amalgamate together. I think the way that they're tied is actually pretty good. And I feel like some of the storylines and or moments are stronger than others. However, I think it buckles underneath its melodrama, and I personally find some of what it's trying to say to be uh, on the surface level, and it doesn't dive deeply enough. For instance, the Matt Dillon storyline, where he's a corrupt, unethical police officer, let's say, who is asked to partake in the, the rescue of the same person he bothered and harassed. While this is very effective, I feel like the film really doesn't dive enough to justify this type of uh it it almost feels insulting in this instance i feel like this one was okay but in some of the other storylines i feel like some of the other ties are insulting like i know the big climax to me actually feels insulting which a lot of people would disagree with the one with uh, the magic blanket that's all i need to say i feel like that it's i don't know what do you what do you both think about this one the main issue with Crash, I think it it tried to do the Altman thing with the parallel multi narrative. Yeah, but like each, each each one could have been its own movie and been fine. It was just it was almost like he was trying to make he was trying to make all these different movies and make them as one movie when it it could have been something completely different. I also think that there's a lot of leftover resentment from it winning Best Picture, especially over Brokeback Mountain. So I do think that is part of it, and we wouldn't dislike it so much if that set of circumstances hadn't happened. Yeah, almost like Green Book. For me, I saw it when it first came out. So I was a teenager, and I got caught up in all the emotion of it all. Oh, here's this big heartfelt moment. Oh, there's this really depressing storyline. Then when I thought about it after, when I had a little time to let it sit, you know, certain plots just didn't hold up, and it didn't really stick together the way it, it should have. And so it's the kind of movie that creaks when you let a little time pass. That's exactly it. And I couldn't agree more. However, some people do like the stuff that's in the moment and, you know, the, the residue afterwards doesn't matter. Now what we're going to do for, for each of these turns of phrase, we're going to try and make some recommendations for fans of either or to try and show that, Hey, we can play both sides. We can, we can, we can cater to your needs. So, I actually have two for the Paul Haggis crash, and I'll explain why. I really love stories that have multiple storylines. Again, I brought up Shortcuts by Altman, because you brought up Altman, James. So, I'm going to recommend two. The first one is also Altman. It's Nashville, which to me is one of the finest examples of films that I've done this ever. 
with the many storylines that all converge together. Otherwise, you have other great examples like Magnolia. That's not the other one I'm recommending, though. But I'm going to say Nashville because Nashville to me is just... I love the fact that you don't know where it's going until it ends. Once it ends with like one of the most breathtaking finales I've ever seen, I found it so overwhelming and suddenly the, the rest of the three hours made perfect sense. So I feel like a, that knows how to tie everything up in such a succinct way. The other recommendation I'm going to have, because this one's more crime-based and you know it's more of a statement, but it also does the multiple storyline things, but this one's more of like a triptych kind of reveal as Amoris Peros by, by Inaritu, where you have three different storylines from different perspectives that all meet technically in a crash, actually. That, like, it's also centered around that idea. So that's what I think. It's a little bit more challenging than Crash the movie is, though, whereas Nashville is mostly fun, easygoing. It's a little bit more digestible outside of some moments. Now, for the Cronenberg crash, you know, this is something that's very challenging, thought-provoking. I'm going to go with something a little out there. I'm going to go with um, Jodorowsky. I'm going to say El Topo, which is a very twisted Western, probably the most twisted Western I've ever seen. I can't say more than that. It's pure art, which is what Jodorowsky does, but also very shocking art. So it's not going to be easy it's going to be quite the ordeal, but it's completely unforgettable. Kind of like Crash. So that's what you've got. So if you're a Haggis fan, you've got Amores Paris or something a little bit uh, a little bit lighter. You've got Nashville. Otherwise, if you're a Cronenberg fan, you've got Jodorowsky's El Topo. That's it. So, Rachel, what type of film fans are there? Are they Crash and Crash or is it something else? Well, there are two types of film fans out there. There are Harrison Ford fans and Harrison Ford fans. Okay. Can you elaborate? Okay. So not many people realize that there were actually two Harrison Fords. We all know the star of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, who's been in movies like Working Girl, The Mosquito Coast. We know him, I think, primarily as an action blockbuster star, but really he's got a lot of range and has done a lot of different things. One of the greatest stars since the 70s. He's also firmly, I would say, part of the new Hollywood. So not only is he appealing to a mass audience, he is also very much of the modern era, and now kind of the grandfather of our era. And then there's Harrison Ford 1.0. Now, if you like Harrison Ford 1, you are probably either very, very old or way too into old Hollywood. I consider myself relatively well-informed about silent film. You know, I know all the big stars and the directors and things like that. But I had never heard of this Harrison Ford until I randomly saw his picture in a movie magazine once. He was a theater actor. He came to Hollywood. He mostly did, from what I can tell, romances and comedies, maybe a little bit of action. But he was very much the leading man. And then, like many other people, his career died when the talkies came in and they realized his voice wasn't suitable. So he went back to theater... I think he lived a pretty good life just acting and doing his thing. But as a film star, he kind of faded. So I would say that a fan of his really wants to dig into the early days of cinema and learn more about the medium itself in a lot of ways. Now, the only way that this could come full circle, when he stopped acting, did he become a carpenter and or set designer? Not that I know of, but I hope so. 
that would have been perfect because then like the the two forwards would have combined. I'm tempted to almost call the silent one, even though it's more fitting for the other one. Harrison Ford one, which yeah. you know, Air Force One, haha. But I like this because it's not just stating that people like mainstream movies. It's also bringing up there's a there is a specific type of cinephile that purely goes into silence and or golden age stuff. There is that type of cinephile that rejects like the 50s are too recent they love like the the early early stuff exactly and that is basically my wheelhouse so i'm very much in the harrison ford 1.0 category how about you guys james are you into harrison ford or are you into harrison ford i haven't seen anything by harrison ford 1.0 though i will definitely get on it because i (laughs) oh any silent (laughs) film let's say i mean silent film can be cool but I definitely, you know, prefer you know the second Harrison Ford because he's one of the greatest actors of all time who's had some of the greatest roles of all time. An I icon. Mean, it, in in a short amount of time, he was Han Solo, Rick Deckard, and Indiana Jones, like just in a matter of like less than five years. And some guy in Apocalypse Now, but whatever. Yeah, and some guy in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Even two Can't seconds that. in that movie, and that's worth bringing up. So <laughs> all you have to say is Harrison Ford, and people like know pretty much everything. Well, except for the other Harrison Ford, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, the, except for the other Harrison Ford. <laughs> I'm not sure how they got away with the same name. I think he must have predated Screen Actors Guild regulations because two actors can't have the same name now. They add an initial or something. Oh, uh, so like Harrison J. Ford or something, which actually yeah. just off the top. That's a dope name. Don't know if his middle name is John, but it might as well be now. Harrison J. Ford. I think, oh God. Look, I love silent cinema and I love the golden age. But if I had to pick between the two, I am such a sucker for new Hollywood. It's not the blockbuster stuff. That stuff is whatever. But like when it comes to new Hollywood or the neo-noir stuff or the thrillers, I love Blade Runner. I love, yeah. Look, like Indiana Jones is fine. I like Raiders, and I think the rest are okay or mediocre. Star Wars, though, I love the first two, so A New Hope and Empire. So, but you know, it's like a lot of like love, hate, love, hate. That's not like I'm a fan of the genre per se, of like you know the the, the action or the sci-fi. But Harrison Ford 2.0 has done enough where it's like that era is what I'm fixated on the seventies and the eighties, like Blade Runner. It's like that type of thriller stuff or yeah. In the seventies, it was a lot of like great things in the seventies. You know, there's also, um, he was an American graffiti too, wasn't he? Oh yes. Yes. That, that's going to come later. That, that seals the deal. So Harrison Ford 2.0, that's mine. Okay, sounds good. And for the record, as far as I can tell, Harrison Ford does not have a middle name according to Wikipedia, so I guess that is just his name. So he's very lucky he missed those Screen Actors Guild laws. So for my second part, I'm going to, instead of recommending things in the style of these actors, because, you know, actors can basically play anything, I'm going to recommend two lesser-known films by them. For Harrison Ford 2.0... Actually, I'm going to go with American Graffiti, not because it's not a famous movie, but because I think it's not really thought of as a Harrison Ford movie. It's like a 70s movie. It's a George Lucas movie, but he's not the star. However, in the couple of brief moments that he's on screen, you can already see the charisma there and people remember him, even though he's such a small part. So I think 
For me, American Graffiti really sets up how the next decade or so of film is going to go. It's a precursor of the new Hollywood, of George Lucas, of the nostalgia craze, and of Harrison Ford himself and Richard Dreyfuss and their future careers. Maybe not so much Ron Howard. But for anybody who loves film, this is a way to see how that era sort of got started. So that's my pick for Ford 2. Ford 1, well, I have not actually seen any of his films. I would imagine many of them are lost because he is a silent movie actor, and that is one of the tragedies of silent film. However, there is one, and I know for sure it's preserved in the Library of Congress, but I've never been able to find it anywhere else. But if anybody does find it, send it to the K-Cut. And that is called Lovers in Quarantine, only because after a year of all of this, I just found the title really darkly funny. It's a rom-com, and it's a who's who of silent film. You've got Alfred Lunt, Edna Mae Oliver, and Bibi Daniels. And they're just, it's supposed to be a really good movie, and just a typical example of the silent comedies of the era. That sounds really good. And yeah, Library of Congress, that means that it is attainable. So Get on that library. Yeah, I, I have to. But I, I just want to give a quick shout out. This might put me in hot water. American Graffiti is the best thing George Lucas ever did out of everything that he's done. Just saying. I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that opinion like stands up because I know. Does it? Because I know some Star Wars fans are going to kill me. I mean, here's the thing with Star Wars. Uh, in the original trilogy, he only directed the first one and he guided this guided two and or five and six. Of course. But there's a lot of people who say that after that, it was apparent that he needed help with his stories and like not necessary stories, but help with his projects, which is one of the complaints of the prequel trilogies because he did it himself. And it was like, Hmm, you're not really that great of a director. You're just good at, you know, building this world and telling this particular story or doing bigger projects like that. But yeah, there, there's a lot that goes back to, you know, American graffiti and the first stars, which I believe wasn't he, wasn't his deal to do both. Like he had to do American graffiti before he could do star Wars. Like that made it. So he was allowed to do star Wars, whatever it is. God bless American graffiti, which if nobody here knows uh, some, some slight trivia before we continue American graffiti is why we have very long credits because basically they couldn't really afford to, to pay everybody what they were due. So they said, we'll put you in the credits and you'll be credited for what you've done for the world to see. And that's why we have long credits. Thank you. American graffiti. Really? That's, yep. That's fascinating. And if then I'm not he, mistaken. And, and, and then he completely annihilated the opening credits when he did the opening crawl for Star Wars. <laughs> Let's do it, but this time at the start. <laughs> so, okay, James. So what what is your thing going to be? Are you going to be into Harrison Ford and Harrison Ford or Crash and Crash or? No, mine's, mine's a little bit different. Mine is Steven and Steven. And this isn't necessarily something specific to the different types of movie fans. It's a philosophy I hold for uh, career paths for directors. Okay. So let's say you start on your way to becoming a director, there's the road of the two Stevens. And at some point you come into a fork in the road. One sign says Spielberg. The other sign says Soderbergh. Ah, uh, okay. So not everything's even Steven. Exactly. Oh my God. So I've noticed there are some directors that might take one road, but then double back and go to another. Cause you know, you have Spielberg who's, you know, the, he's the king of blockbusters. I mean, the things he's done, the, the the maximalism, you know, and from what Shia LaBeouf says, he's pretty much a corporation and a person. So it's like, he's, he's very much like, you know, industry oriented plays by the rules, 
you know, wants the bigger and better. And then Steven Soderbergh is the complete opposite. He'll do whatever. He'll do like the big films, the small films. He also hates the industry for how it is and tries to break the rules or change the rules on a constant basis. Which we just saw at the Oscars. Yeah, I mean, he completely changed the format for the Oscars, which I think if they perfect it, it's going to be amazing. But I've noticed that there's, you know, some directors will start off as Soderbergh and then flip the script to be Spielberg, which I always find really interesting because it seems like there's this thing where, you know, they'll have a great original first movie, which is kind of like like more low key and really, you know, striking and resonates with a certain crowd. And then they're given the opportunity to jump into a franchise and they just dive in head first. And it's like, what happened? It's like you showed so much promise and then you just drank the Kool-Aid. But I mean, not to not to knock people. I mean, you know, the bigger paychecks, the bigger opportunities. But yeah, I don't know. I just find it interesting when certain directors make that switch from one to the other because it's like, oh, so you know, you really want the big money and the hang with the big stars. But I mean, not to knock anybody who does that. It's just I just always find it interesting. Who do you like then? Having said all of that, do you like Steven or do you like Steven or the directors who work like Steven or the directors who work like Steven? I mean, Soderbergh all day. I figured. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, he's one of the coolest guys in Hollywood. Uh, he's also one of the most versatile. You know, and he always just, I, I just always find myself being more entertained by his movies. It's like, you know, Spielberg's cool, but, you know, it, it's just, it's been done. Partially because of himself. So there's that yeah. side of it too. He, he is an innovator. Uh, Rachel, are you going to go with Steve or are you going to go with Steve? It's all about Steve. I'm going to go with Spielberg, I think, on this one. Really? Using him as an example, I think he's found some very cool ways to work within the industry and put some very interesting things on screen. And it doesn't just include movies. It's also things like he was one of the driving forces behind Animaniacs. True. He's created a film preservation archive to preserve the memories, the testimonies of Holocaust survivors. And to me, none of that would be possible if he hadn't used his way within the industry to build this gigantic Titanic film career he has that gives him the name and gives him the ability to move back and forth so easily between the projects he really loves and the projects that give him the name. I forgot about the Animaniacs, which I haven't seen the newest one, so I don't really care to. But the, the OG Animaniacs is one of the greatest animated series of all time. Fight me. So... Uh, I guess I'm the tiebreaker. That's why I was so shocked. I didn't expect there to be a tie. Um, goodness. This one sucks, but for a good reason. I don't even know. On one hand, and I'll preface it by saying this, one has made my wall of directors on films fatale, but let me let me explain why. I don't necessarily prefer Steven Spielberg, who did make it, but let me explain. Spielberg as as you pointed out, Rachel, has been so monumental to the entire the entire scope of cinema, for better and for worse. Plus, he's made some of the greatest films like Jaws. He's made Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's made E.T. And last but not least, he's made, well, he's made Schindler's List. Amongst other things like Munich and Saving Private Ryan, He's got some mediocrity, but he's got some damn classics as well. On the other hand, Soderbergh, I appreciate more for being daring. I appreciate him being able to wear multiple hats. I feel like something like Schindler's List is one of the only times where you could like put, a, put on a Spielberg film and like not know that it's him until like the end. 
every other Spielberg movie, you just know with the John Williams oboes and brass section and the, you know, the, the murky cinematography because the light's coming. You know it's Spielberg at all times, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But Soderbergh can do so much. And I will say this. If there was an honorable mentions on my wall of directors, he'd be on it. This guy's made Traffic, which is one of the greatest, most underrated films I've ever seen. He's also made an indie classic with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But thanks to you, James, you've made it easier for me to split because if we're looking at the directors influenced by both, I'm certainly going in the wheelhouse of Soderbergh, where it's the art or the Indian client sentimentalities and not the um you know like the the phoned in ron howardy type stuff so absolutely if we're looking at it that way i'm going soderbergh but if we're going just between the two i don't know if i could do it so having said that what are you going to recommend to the fans of steve and steve before i get into that i justify my pick this way for anybody who wonders why it's not it's not just because i'm into the stuff he does i think it's because Soderbergh could make a Spielberg film if he wanted to. Spielberg could never make a Soderbergh film. That's true. I would act even if it's not identical. It's true enough. I, yeah, I, believe I mean, it. obviously, Steven Spielberg has importance, just like Dave Lu- George Lucas has importance. It's like his importance goes beyond the movies because there's after a point where it's like you don't care about the movies anymore. I mean, George Lucas is the reason we had nonlinear digital editing. I mean, they designed what was called the Edit Droid, which was a digital editing system back then, which they sold to Avid, and then they made their digital system. For those who didn't know that. Spielberg invented the Blockbuster. Yeah, he did He did invent the Blockbuster. Uh, another piece of trivia, though, uh, the biggest screw-up in George Lucas's career that's not the holiday special, uh, Howard the Duck, is the reason why we have Pixar, because they had to basically sell off these assets that that uh, LucasArts had, and it became Pixar Animated Studios. Oh wow! So there you go. <laughs> oh so. well, we also have we also have to uh, thank actually both of them because uh, David Fincher used to work for Industrial Light and Magic. True, true. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we we can thank them for uh, you know helping. Uh, begin the career of david fincher but i'm not actually gonna request films i'm gonna request two filmmakers who actually did the thing i said and they went from one and jumped to the other that's barry jenkins and ryan coogler interesting Uh, both of them started as soderbergh and now they're both kind of leaning more towards spielberg because ryan coogler he went from fruitvale station to creed and then black panther and it was like whoa you did this small indie film and then just i don't know where you got like you know Two movies in, you know, two major franchises. And then Barry Jenkins, he's kind of just now doing it because he got The Lion King. But have you seen his his stacked filmography that he's doing before The Lion King? Nevertheless, Underground Railroad drops tomorrow. So he's not quite there yet. Jenkins is still, he's still kicking it back Soderbergh style. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't even think about any of his other projects. Well, it's it's amazing because it took so long for him to get like really going because his first movie medicine for melancholy came out in 08 and he didn't release another film until moonlight in 2016 so like eight which, years yeah which is amazing because like medicine for melancholy was a great movie i'm surprised he didn't get more or any offers after that well but i yeah, think he was working on beale street before moonlight and then did moonlight before so i think no, it, he, I think no he, he, he literally just his career was literally just flatlined for a while 
okay. I thought I thought he was like working like you know pre production on on Beale Street and then did Moonlight. So I thought that's why. No, there was, like, extra years. um, like during like during the period those eight years, it was like he really wasn't getting anything, and he actually I think he was like. Yeah, I don't remember. Something happened. It was just like he just wasn't really getting anything. And then the opportunity to do Moonlight. He could have been working on Beale Street to an extent, but I know. But then decided to do like Moonlight because he had the chance. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'd have to look deeper into it. But yeah, those. Yeah. So I'd say just watch the films of those filmmakers or just like, you know, watch one and then watch the other. I still haven't seen the new Lion King, which I never really had an interest, but I'm kind of curious to see. You don't. don't. (laughs) Not worth it. Yeah, I just think it's, it's interesting that the kind of stages directors take because you know there are some people who you know pick a lane and stick with it or you know they kind of flip because they're like oh i can do the major projects now i mean not to knock anybody for making any good business moves but it's always fascinating i just like i'm I'm big into people's habits so when i see them make a jump like that i'm like oh what's the reason yeah fair enough cool okay so uh that's pretty much it for our uh turns of phrase Please let us know if you like Crash, or if you like Crash, if you like Harrison Ford, or if you like Harrison Ford, or if you like Steven, or you like Steven. Otherwise, we're going to say sayonara, and the only way that we know how, we're going to say it through our weekly recommendations. Rachel, what are you going to recommend to people this week, as if we haven't recommended enough? Well, before we do that, I'm going to remind everybody that you can check us out on social media and Instagram. Twitter, or Facebook under the K-Cut. Don't forget that in the first week of June, we're doing our cinematic smorgasbord. And so if you want to join in, just watch Under the Cherry Moon starring Prince, and we'll see you there. So for my recommendation this week, I'm going with the 1948 John Huston movie, Key Largo. It was the last pairing of Bogart and Bacall. They had been together for many years at this point, both on screen and in real life, so they're super relaxed with each other. You've got excellent supporting performances with Claire Trevor and Lionel Barrymore and Edward G. Robinson as the villain, and it's just a really good little pot boiler set in Florida, I believe. Just a really all-around great sort of late film noir-ish movie. You can't go wrong with Houston, absolutely. James, what are you going to recommend for this week? I'm going to recommend the film Sleeping Beauty, but it is not the Disney property. It's a 2011 Australian erotic drama film. It stars Emily Browning. And for those who don't know who Emily Browning is, she was the lead character in Sucker Punch, because that's like the only thing I can think of off the top of my head that she was in. And it's a really interesting movie about a college student who takes a part-time job that pays really well with this really strange group. And the job is it, it's rich men like to sleep in the company of nude women and that's all they do is sleep and yeah it's it's fairly strange so if you like Cronenberg's crash you might like this movie you'll have to check that out so uh, on my end I'm going to finish off with Nosferatu which I guess you could say what type of Nosferatu fan are you uh, <laughs> in this instance it's not the the German expressionist one it's actually going to be the Werner Herzog one which is from the 70s, late 70s, actually, starring Klaus Kinski as, as the titular vampire. Um, Isabella Gianni, who's always brilliant, and uh, the late Bruno Ganz, who miss him dearly. This version is so much more... Art- okay, well, the, 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 the silent one is still very artistic in its own way, but this one looks like... It just looks like the, the coldest most frigid, lifeless, everything is pale 
and grim. It certainly ends a lot darker, too. And it's Werner Herzog, who always goes all out. So I'm going to say Nosferatu the Vampire. So that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for listening. And as Rachel pointed out, please check us out on social media, at Spotify, and uh, tune in next time. So that was the, the K-Cut. Now we're going into the L-Cut. <laughs>